sit back, relax. You're listening to the Lazy Procrastination Podcast. I'm Sophie, and this is The Big Sleep. What is this place, anyway? You said you wanted to sit down. It's the public library. You've never been here? No. That makes two for me. I don't see any books. They're in there. Hello, hello, and welcome back. I hope you're still doing great. First of all, I wanted to thank everyone who reached out to me, sent me a message to tell me they'd listened to the podcast or that, that they thought it was interesting. Um, it means the world to me. I'm back this week for the second episode of the Bookworm series, which, as you can probably tell from the audio clip that just played, will be about public libraries. I thought that it would be interesting to speak about where books are and where we can like find them in the context of a book series. Public libraries are fucking amazing, and I don't think they get nearly enough credit. I think it's clear by now that I'm a bit of a nerd. I picked my glasses as the logo for this podcast, so guess I gave it away. But yeah, I love libraries. To give you an example, during lockdown, when I was procrastinating doing my uni work, I decided I was going to, so I was playing The Sims, and I decided I was going to rebuild the whole of Newcrest from scratch. I was like, I'm going to do something great. It's all going to be in a style. And then like I did a random thing and my boyfriend told me it was Spanish colonial. So then I went on Pinterest and I found loads of like Spanish colonial style houses. Um, like I read up on the architecture um, and obviously I was too lazy to actually build the whole thing because I admire people who actually are great at building on The Sims or so many on YouTube, like they do an amazing work. I just couldn't do the whole thing. I was too lazy. But one of the few buildings that I actually completed and the first one that I built was a library. It was called the Angela Davis Public Library and it was iconic, if I do say so myself. It had like a painting room and loads of different reading rooms and then it had like a really nice corridor that gave onto an internal courtyard where you could go and like have coffee or play chess or actually you can't have coffee because I didn't have the extension but there was a bar it was great there was a piano for people who didn't have for sims who didn't have a piano at home um yeah I got really excited and then when I told people about it they thought it was funny and I didn't get why <laughs> and then I realized it was because I could have built anything and I picked a library but I was thinking about it and I think public libraries are probably the thing in this world that embody the spirit of this podcast the best because I think of this podcast or I want this podcast to be a celebration of curiosity, laziness and procrastination. Curiosity, I think it's self-evident. It's a library. You can find whatever you want. It's great. There's a computer. There are books. There is everything. Procrastination, I think it's one of those spaces where you can just go and like you see a book. That's not the reason why you came, but you pick it up and you start reading it or like you pick up a comic book or you just like wander around the aisles and you're like, oh, I've never seen this bit of the library before. Let me spend a bit of time there. And then you don't end up working, but also laziness, because I think a good thing with libraries is that there is space that they can be great for actually working. I'm not going to say that it's impossible to like work in the library, but I also think they have this like trick where you go and you think you have or you don't have the job by like actually going there. So then you feel less bad about 
not actually working. <laughs> so I remember when I was at uni, I would like, I don't know, be watching YouTube videos in my room. And then I thought, okay, that's too much I need to actually work today. So then I would go to the library um, and end up doing the exact same thing, but it was in a new setting. So I felt like I'd done something. I could just laze around there. So <laughs> yeah, public libraries, we stand them at the big sleep. There's something quite radical. I was thinking about it, about a public library in our world, in like our neoliberal, hyper-productive, profit-driven world. Because I wanted to make an episode about them, but I tried to think about what would be interesting to talk about. And I realized it was one of the only public spaces that is open to all for free and where you can just stay for however long you want without actually buying anything. So to borrow books, you need to have an address and that's it. But to like go in and read books and access the library collection, you don't even need to give them that. So it's really open to everybody. And well, I've been studying for like most of my life. <laughs> um, and so I've gone to the library to work, but I've always loved seeing people who weren't there to study. They just went to read or to use the computer or to like read the papers. I remember when I was a kid, um, so one of the libraries near where I lived, it's called the Bibliothèque Jean-Pierre Melville. And it has this really big, like, I mean, I think all libraries have these, but this one has a really big newspapers and magazine section. And you can see it because it's the first thing when you enter the library, it's like their film collection and then that. And I really loved, like, you had some old people that were probably retired and they were just there at like, I don't know, 11 on a Wednesday reading the papers for the week. And I just, I thought it was cool, but yeah. They're an amazing space and we should fight for them and we should preserve them at all costs. I learned these, these numbers, I'm going to tell you, I learned them from the Free Books Campaign, which is a really cool initiative. You should check them out on Instagram. They're working at providing books for people who can't afford them. So they have a list of like fiction, nonfiction, poetry, quite radical books by feminist thinkers, black and other people of color authors, queer authors. And you can, if you don't have the means to buy a book at the moment, you can just apply for like one of the, or like request one of the books and they'll send it to you. So yeah, check that out. It's just at Free Books Campaign. But yeah, when I was reading up on, when well, I was reading their like uh, manifesto or like what they were sharing, um, I learned that in 2018, almost 130 libraries were closed down in the UK. And that didn't surprise me because the austerity governments don't care about funding culture and they don't care about funding that sort of culture in particular. Like, yeah, a library is just, it's not going to bring in any money. It's not going to, it's not sexy. If you think about a public library, you can't really like make it cool. Except if you're a huge nerd like me. And I'm trying to make it cool. But yeah, we don't, we kind of take them for granted and they're like boring and you can't talk. And blah. But at the same time, it's kind of an amazing space to like still have. And like in the middle of this, neoliberal world that we have and it's also a space that's dedicated to nothing like like as I said or it's it's not dedicated to nothing but it's dedicated to so many things and often you'll have like sofas and places to sit and so you can just go and exist in that space you don't have to be doing something specifically which again very few spaces are like that parks are like this but they're outside so when I was doing some research about public libraries for this podcast, I realized, unsurprisingly, that the Tories have been against public libraries from the beginning. So the library like we know it today appeared in the mid-19th century in Western Europe. I'm saying we, it's France and the UK. 
And at the time, the Conservative Party was opposed to them because they were worried both of the costs and also of the social transformations that might occur. And that's something that's always like quite interesting, I think, to remember when you read stuff about just in general, like public schooling or when they made books more accessible, so like when we invented paperbacks or that kind of stuff. Um, there was always a backlash. There was always some sort of like conservative resistance of people who are saying that, oh, God, what's going to happen if the masses can access knowledge? Which, well, obviously they haven't changed today. And since 2010, they keep being defunded since like the big austerity turn post-2008 crisis here. And like historically, libraries have been undefended. But I've got all those like numbers and stuff. Well, it's not numbers, but like dates and facts from a website called politics.co.uk. I'll link it in the podcast notes. But um, yeah, long story short, public libraries are amazing and they're precious and they should be celebrated and defended against austerity and people who don't believe in a space to blaze around in. So now that I've done this kind of like presentation, I guess I wanted to like just chat about my own like relationship to libraries. Because when I was thinking about it, I was just trying to think of like some memories I have attached to them. Like, I don't know, I was trying to figure out why it was so important for me to make something about them and then I realized it's just because I think we've all like been there we all know they exist but like yeah we don't chat about them that often they're kind of slept on and it's a pity so yeah um when I was a kid I spent a lot of time at the library like my mom would take us there every week and the summer um where my grandma lived it was a small island where we go in the summer um in Brittany and there's one public library and you couldn't borrow that many books but we would go. It was great. It was the entertainment of the summer. <laughs> and yeah, so one of the things that I really remember that like really marked me was that I read loads of comic books in the library. I didn't, I would never buy them. I think, I think my parents bought me like one or two like proper comic books, but I would read so many of them at the library. And also because you read them really fast. So I could just like sit down and just the time for my mom to like actually wander around and go pick her books. I could have like read one or two. And so I was thinking of the ones that I loved. And every time I think about them, I remember I'm kind of conflicted about them now. Because those, so there were like two or three that I really loved. Um, like the kind of like Belgian comic books from the 1980s, 1990s. So there was like Natasha, who was an air hostess or like a stewardess. There was Jeannette Pointu, who was an investigative journalist traveling around the world. And then you had like Yokotsuno, that one was a little bit different, but it was, I don't even know what her real job was. I think she worked in like electrics or like electronics I think she worked with like computers and stuff but then she like had loads of adventures and she ended up in the space in the space in space and there was like a planet and there were blue people and there were like her friends anyways and then every time I like think back to them like with a feminist outlook I find them so interesting because on the one hand like those two especially Natasha and like also Janet Pontu to some extent they're like those incredibly beautiful like hypersexualized drawn women like with huge boobs and a tiny waist and they always end up half naked because they're like in a plane crash or whatever so their clothes are torn and it's just as a kid it didn't didn't particularly pay attention to that but now when I remember and like when I was looking at pictures it's just like so yeah it's such like sexualized and they're all like they're all drawn by men 
it's such like a sexualized way of drawing them that and then at the same time i wouldn't say they were like wholly sexist comics because they were all like really independent there were hardly any men characters in Janet Ponty she would just like travel the world and meet interesting women from around the globe I remember there was one where she would go and so there was one with some like women like Maasai women and then there was one where she would go in a and like those were all inspired by real stories she would go in Australia and she met with like female truck drivers long-haul truck drivers which apparently is a apparently which is like a male-dominated field and then it was like investigating stuff with them and what else do I remember with her yeah she was just like super she made me want to be a journalist for the longest time like it was really cool she just traveled everywhere wrote about people she was cool she was like a redhead with really short hair and she was not she wasn't as traditionally I guess attractive as like Natasha would be for instance but she was still the way she was drawn was still pretty sexualized and then Natasha she was well, as I said, she was, like, super hot. Like, she's the, the basic blonde bombshell. But at the same time, she was, like, really clever. So in that, she kind of exploded the cliché. Like, you would have expected... The, the, like, the cliché attached to this would usually have been, like, a dumb blonde girl who just, like, cared about, like, love and impressing men. But in this, it was, like, slightly inverted because she was the one who was super clever always on the run always like making plans and then Walter who was her male it was her colleague but like he was completely stupid so I don't know yeah retrospectively it's quite interesting because I think I think if you'd ask the the writers or like the, the men who made these comic books they would probably say it was feminist or at least they would say it was like supporting women because it was independent like strong independent women but then if you look at the gaze through which they created them it's so objectifying I don't know it's one of the big memories that I have from libraries is borrowing these um, these books and all these comic books and also you can borrow them again and again and so it would depend because those come in series, right? There would be like under 30. And so there would be some that were just never in the library. And then sometimes I would figure out. So I would just reread them. And then sometimes I would be like, oh my God, I haven't read this one. And I would be so excited. So yeah. And then there were a couple other, like you could soon it was different because that one was more, there was a true story rather than just like episode after episode. There was more like an overarching arc and the drawings were more beautiful and the story was more complex. So... And it wasn't as much as a like kind of like cliche comic book woman, but it was also really good. Like I think, I mean, that one was my favorite. I just that's the one that I had an actual one that belonged to me that probably still is somewhere at home. So yeah, and then there were other ones, but like those are the three that really stuck. But yeah, so I guess that's one thing that I just loved and like you could discover thing and just read them and be there. And as a kid, it was really fun because there's a never ending uh, provision of things to read and things to look at that just would be there for free and I could borrow like I don't know five a week and like three comic books and a film it was just really cool and then I think like as a teen when I think about growing a bit older the library was kind of like this site of in-betweenness or of waiting because I was I would be like between I don't know I would be done with school and my friends wouldn't be done with school so I'd have to like wait for them or I would eat outside and like be done or you know, would be waiting to go between places. And like, and because I didn't live right near my house, I couldn't just like go home for an hour and then go back out. So when I had those moments of like waiting, and there was a library just in the street from my school. So I could just go there. And that one, it was a lot of like, 
maybe working a little bit or maybe just like picking up a book or just like kind of being there. It was somewhere to be that was inside and that was like I could go to the toilets if I want, like libraries, public toilets that are just like clean and you can just go in and use them. Brilliant. We love that. <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, so, and then there's one book that I really wanted to talk about because that one I remember picking up. Like the only reason why I picked it up was because it was in the selection of the week by the librarians. So like often, that's also something that I love in libraries is that you have people who are passionate and they can like talk to you about the books. And like I said that in the last episode already, but I think one of the reasons why I love books so much is because you can share around them and like recommend them to people. So it's not not in a like bragging way or like just being able to say I've read this so I'm better than you but just the idea that you can share around them and you can just get more people to read stuff I can be like well if you like this one then I really recommend this other one or have do you know about this other so anyways they had this selection and it was all books about um I think it was specifically books about war that time and the one I picked up was called Wars and Womanly Face by, and I'm going to butcher her name, sorry, Svetlana Alexievich. And in French, it's called La Guerre n'a pas un visage de femme. And so Svetlana Alexievich, she won the Nobel Prize of Literature in 2015, which I had no idea about until I looked up her name to be able to pronounce it to the best of my abilities for this podcast. Um, and it was an incredible read, and so I really want to tell you all about it. Um, so the book is basically about the women who are in the Red Army during World War II. And Zetlana Alexievich, she's a journalist. Um, she, she's a reporter and she spent all of her life working on collecting oral testimonies to document what it had been like to live in like the Soviet Union throughout the, throughout the 20th century. And like you had a lot of defining traumatic moments so I know she um, interviewed some people about Chernobyl as well but this one is about World War II so the process of like writing it lasted over seven years in the 19 late 1970s and early 1980s and she interviewed hundreds of women it was from pilots to doctors to snipers to then the people who were in the back line so laundresses cooks telephone operators who were also in the army and she just collected their testimonies. And the book is a collection of them talking about what it was like to be a woman at war at the time. And I remember some of the bits that like really stuck with me were some women who would be talking about um, their periods and then being and like that, how that impacted their bodies. Because some of them would say that like they completely stopped having their periods because of the stress their body was against or like because they'd lost loads of weight or because just they were... Like, yeah, because of the environment they were in. And then I think there's a chapter in the book that's talking specifically about that. And some others would talk about how they, they didn't stop and like what it was like to be at war, be like out in the field and have your period. And I just, I think at the time when I read it, I just realized, I don't know how little I thought about this or how much time we spent talking about war at school. And then we never really talked about anything that had to do with the gender dimension of it, like yeah, as as she said, it's like an, an womanly face. When you think of World War Two, you don't think of women fighting. If anything, you think of like the women who stayed behind or like you think of I'm French. So in France, there's, if I think of like what I learned at school from women and World War Two, it's kind of the like punitive raids after the war 
where you had popular justice, and I'm doing air quotes, where women who were accused of having slept with the enemy got like their heads shaven, shaved. And that was like super violence. I remember seeing images of that and speaking about that at school, but that was kind of it. And we like, to be fair, we barely talked about the USSR and like the Red Army. But, um, but yeah, so that read was really eye-opening. As far as I remember, it was really easy to read. Like it was just a page turner and I just, I got, I get really vivid memories from it. So yeah. And then, well, I guess then obviously when you go to uni, that's when for, I guess, most people or like everyone who goes to uni, the library becomes something that's central to your life but I don't it's not the same type of libraries because those ones are like institutional libraries and they're closed and you can't go in and that drives me insane it's all this like crazy gatekeeping and it's the same online where it's like even within institutions like I've always got friends who are, we're all messaging each other to figure out who has the institutional access to that one JSTOR article and it drives me insane so it's against the <laughs> spirit of what I want to celebrate here which is how open and accessible public libraries allow books to be. I could write pages and pages about working in the library at university, but first of all, it wouldn't be that interesting. And again, it's not, it's like this safeguarded seed of knowledge. So it's kind of the opposite type of libraries. But I still obviously read many books that stayed with me from the uni library and there's one that I really wanted to talk about because that one I borrowed over the summer between my second and my third year I had more of like this public library books relations to it because it wasn't just like I picked it up and it was in a pile and it was to write an essay it was like I borrowed it to read it and I kept it with me and it was this moment where you're like you're still taking the book everywhere I guess I haven't said that yet but um, I have this really there's kind of like two types of people in this world you have people who think that like like books are like precious objects and you have to preserve them and not like you can never keep them open on the table or like you know corner them or write on them or whatever and then you've got people like me who just like live with the books it's like the book becomes a part of you and it's in your bag all the time and it's being a bit shaken around but at the same time that's how it becomes like so imbued with memories and yeah, you just keep it with you. And I like that. I like that that's how I deal with my books. I'm a proud defender of that. But you can't really do that with library books because you have to return them. So it's always like I keep wanting to hold them around just the same. But then I'm worried that I'm going to spill something on them or something. Anyways, besides the point, that book was Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. And I'm sure many of you have heard of it. It was in many of the anti-racist reading lists books that were circulated during the latest wave of social media black lives matter movement i'm saying it like that just because there were loads of them being circulated maybe a month ago and now it's kind of died down and i've seen some people complaining about that or at least having thoughts about that there was a really cool article actually about the anti-racist reading list and kind of wondering if it's enough or kind of thinking of the role who it's actually written for and basically the the summary of the article was that like obviously it's interesting to have them but like yeah who are they for and how do we really expect people to read the whole like people who are trying to get an introduction to racism to read the autobiography of Malcolm X and then be enlightened and there were a couple actually I'll link them in the podcast notes so there was this one um, and then there was another one that I read that I really liked, which was on how black writers also they write good books they don't write anti-racist manuals and 
So there was something around that. I'll share both of these. But yeah, Sister Outsider is a collection of Audre Lorde's essays. And amongst these, you've got the very famous, the master's tools won't demolish the master's house. I think that's the, the exact title. Um, and then you've got the uses of the erotic and you've got a lot of other essays in there. And it's, I have the like green cover. I remember this book really clearly because yeah, I got it around for such a long time. And it was, it was great because it was not the first time I'd heard of Adrenals or even like I'd had um, kind of quotes or like extracts of Audre Lorde's work shared with me or like that I had to read at uni but I'd never like sat down with her work to just read the whole thing and like really spend time with her and how she thinks and how she writes and I'm so glad I did because she writes in such a uh, it's like she writes in a way that's it's full of love and it's full of ideas it's so inspirational um not in like the sense of inspirational quotes just that once I read it I was genuinely inspired to think differently or like it made me rethink of certain things or it gave me new ideas to explore so I was so grateful and she's obviously it's a it's a like central book of black feminism and or womanism and so I was so glad that I read it over that summer and that I read it also like not in the context of having to write an essay and just like picking it up from the library and bringing it back two days later once I've mined it for usable quotes and central concepts but instead it was more a book that I really like got to read and got to spend time with and kind of infuse myself with its ideas and it was really great and so again really recommend it I recommend borrowing all of these from oh it's just two I guess because before I talked about comic books which I mean I guess I recommend having a look at because they were they marked me, they were cool to spend time with. But again, I'm on the fence because they're super objectifying in terms of how they're drawn. I'm not going to talk about it again. I've talked about it already. But yeah, and that makes me think just in general, or that made me think, I'm not a huge fan usually of quoting for the sake of quoting quotes out of context. But I was looking up, sometimes I like write quotes on my phone's notes when I see them. And I had one that was about like, books that were read by other people like library books and so I thought I'd just read it because it's really beautiful and I think it embodies what I was trying to say about the beauty of because I guess well no I didn't say that wait let me cycle back a little bit because I didn't talk about the library books themselves that much here I talked about the library as a space but I also think there's something beautiful of reading books that have that many other people have touched and like have read and then many other people will read after you um one of the things that I loved the most when reading library books was when people had forgotten so you know how you would usually well people just use random objects as bookmarks and then it would be like a, a tube ticket or like an old receipt or something and I loved or like a note and I just really loved when people would forget them in the library books because then I would have I would get like a snapshot or like a snippet of somebody else's life that was that stayed within the book. And yeah, I like this idea that the book would, would circulate and like if it was one that I loved, that other people would be able to get it and read it and just and I still love it actually. I just think it's a beautiful thing that it's like it belongs to everybody and so it circulates. Or it belongs to everybody and it belongs to nobody. And then it can circulate. So yeah, anyway, so that's the thing. And the, the like library quote that I had was, it's from Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. Well, I'll just read it. Um, 
When I opened them, most of the books had the smell of an earlier time leaking out between the pages, a special odor of the knowledge and emotions that for ages have been calmly resting between the covers. Breathing it in, I glanced through a few pages before returning each book to its shelf. And I just think it's, yeah, it's a like really nice way of describing the object book and how it encapsulates so many things and contains so many things. And I think that's definitely something that I want to think about throughout this series. It's also the book as an object itself and feeling it and kind of interacting with it. Um, so yeah, and one last thing that I wanted to talk about was kind of the idea of libraries and archives and the connection and kind of, again, the like the radical side that it can have and um, the radical aspect of it, just because of the knowledge that it's able to keep safe and to keep alive. And so for that, I was thinking about the Feminist Library in London that's in Peckham. And I've sadly, I've been like following them on social media and I've been reading stuff about them ever since I moved to London I really wanted to go well Peckham is not like next door to where I live so I never made it before corona hit and then obviously like so many things that I wanted to do <laughs> during this year in London I wasn't able to go physically there because well corona and you couldn't go anywhere but I did read they just published as I'm recording it just they just like released it today but they did a feminist zine which is called Carrying a Pandemic and it's their first zine and it's really great it's for free it's available online I'll link it I really recommend it it's a lot of different like pieces and essays and you have poems and you've got like an interview and you have some pictures that people created during this pandemic to think about the role of care uh, at this time and just in general I guess capture how they felt and I really loved reading it and um, there's one that I really like which was about like sourdough but it wasn't the same sourdough as you usually have and it was on kind of having things around and having the time to watch things brought or like <laughs> I'm not doing it justice just read it it's beautiful but yeah the feminist library was created in the 70s in 1975 during the like, women's liberation movement to kind of safeguard the knowledge that was being created. And it's mostly led by volunteers, or I think it's maybe only led by volunteers. And it's faced loads of crises. They say that like on their website throughout the year because it's like underfunded, but it managed to keep alive and um, it's still here today. And I really am looking forward to go there when everything reopens and they've got they've got fiction they've got non-fiction they have like newspapers and I think they just have also like kind of an archive of activist material and so that made me think of one another place in Paris where I actually got to go which was the uh, the lesbian archive center in Paris it's called RCL Archive Recherche Culture Lesbian, I think. And that one is about, it's again, it's like a feminist archive of the movement. And I got to go because a friend of a friend told me that her grandma worked there or like her grandma's sister. And so then they took me, um, people like just volunteers took me there and they would just, they told me so many stories and I got to check because I was working on black feminism in France in the 70s. I was working on the, Coordination des Femmes Noires from my undergrad dissertation. And it was just, yeah, it was really great because again, that time it wasn't books specifically because that one was just 
like militant like activist materials. It was posters, it was leaflets. Um, you've got a couple of academic theses. Now you've got mine there um, that people have written about French, the French feminist movement. You've got a lot of like newspaper clippings, but it's a way to safeguard that knowledge that hasn't really been archived in the traditional archives. But the feminist library in London, from what I can see, is kind of, it's a bit of that, but then it's also just a library with feminist books I suppose and so yeah I'm really excited to check it out and I would highly recommend reading the zine because it was nice it made me feel good and it made me think about things so yeah that's a wrap for this second episode I hope that you enjoyed it I really enjoyed preparing it and just thinking about libraries and spending time remembering how much I love them. Shout out to my mom for transmitting me this love of libraries. I think it's really down to her. <laughs> and yeah, for the next one, I think that I'll talk about secondhand bookshops and secondhand books and kind of like, again, where we find books. And then I'll finally move on to, well, what finally? Actually, no, I'll just take my time. It's a podcast about taking your time. So I'll take my time and speak about bookshops and Again, where we find books and how we find them. Yeah, so if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a... I was going to say leave a like, leave a comment, but I'm not on YouTube. So leave some stars, like rate it. Do leave a comment because I know no one comments podcasts so much, but like I would love to hear from you. And also leave them on Instagram. It's at the big sleep pod. And I will talk to you next week. Until then, sleep tight. Bye.